Thank you. Good morning, church. It's so good to be here with y'all. I am super excited that things have begun to improve enough for us over COVID and what's been going on the last year that we can start to make some strides forward in moving on. Uh, I'm excited for me. I'm a little sad for you that mine is the first face you have to see up here in a year, but I get to drink during the sermon so I don't dry out the whole time. So that's good news for me. We are going to be in Daniel 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, there are some blue Bibles in the back. I would love you to grab one, take it home. It's our gift to you. We're going to be on page 434 of that Bible in Daniel chapter 8 this morning. I'm going to move in and out of that passage a little bit rather than trying to read the whole thing to you at once because then there'll be a lot there for you to try and remember. So I'm going to move back and forth to the passage a little bit. As we get started this morning, I wonder if you have been through... hot right there. I'll let you mute that. I wonder if you've been through something traumatic, whether you've seen something traumatic, or you've been involved in an accident, or you've had some kind of issue that you woke up with that vision in your head for weeks and months afterwards. Either something you witnessed or something that happened to you. I know I've had something similar to that. And there comes a time period where that starts to fade from memory, where you start to feel like a person again who's going to be able to move on from that event. As we come into Daniel 8, I think we find Daniel in that place, where Daniel 7, the vision of Daniel 7, at least the emotional recoil of that is starting to wear off. He's starting to feel like a person again, and like he can move on again, and just in time for him to start to feel comfortable again, God rattles him with a waking vision that we read about in chapter 8. So if you'll grab your Bibles, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 to start, and we'll go from there. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last." I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds." Chuck asked when I wanted to preach if I wanted to take one of the chapters in the narrative or one of the chapters in the apocalyptic. And as I started to study, I started to rethink my choice, right? Because as we read this, we're like, oh, all this makes perfect sense. I know exactly what the application is and what I'm supposed to do with this. Not only do we not understand, but, but there's a whole other point of view here that Daniel, who received this vision, would have understood very different things than we do and would have not understood some things that we might understand with hindsight. So, This morning, as we look at it, we're going to try and think about, okay, what would Daniel have struggled with? 
And I'm going to try to give you some of what Daniel would have understood, but we're going to try to look at it first from his perspective without our hindsight of history. And then we'll come back and, and bring that into view. That gives us a couple of advantages. Number one, they wouldn't have understood everything, so now we can see what they were meant to get out of this vision. And number two, I think it releases us from this idea that we have to understand everything that's going on in our time in history right now. There's lots that God is doing that I look at God and go, why? Why this? Why now? And I'm sure Daniel would have had those days. So rather than trying to understand this whole thing from every perspective right off the bat, we're going to give ourselves the same grace that we would have given Daniel to understand his piece of it at a time. The chapter begins with a chronological marker. This is very common of the books in Daniel. We see him tell us when this was taking place. It says, in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Two years after the vision of Daniel 7. If you were here last week, or you watched online last week, you got to hear about the vision of Daniel 7 with the, the four mighty beasts that come up in this incredible imagery and language that span really the whole of the time from when Daniel was there to the second coming of Christ. That serves as the overlay for all of the rest of the apocalyptic chapter, chapters. We're given a setting, right? We're told this is taking place in the, in the citadel at Susa. Now, this would have been a, a citadel that was actually destroyed at this time, that Babylon destroyed in their conquests. And it would have been in Elam at the Ulai Canal, which would have been the center of the Persian empire, the center of the Persian power from the Jews' perspective. So what Daniel has is a vision coming to him in a distant place about far future events. So as you can imagine, his understanding is going to have to come a little bit at a time, just like ours. There are similarities with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Daniel 2, as you remember, was the dream with the statue. Daniel 7 was the four beasts. Both those and this passage have vague images of world powers coming up and then being destroyed and coming up and being destroyed. There are differences between these passages as well that we're going to look at, starting with how they're represented, a statue and beasts and now these animals. And so far what we're seeing is a much more limited scope of our vision. We're not seeing the whole picture like we saw in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. We're starting to see a more granular picture of it. One of the illusions that comes up over and over in chapter 8 that I want you to attune your ears to is this idea of great and powerful. For instance, the horn throughout the Old Testament is heard as the symbol of power. We use that to represent power in kings. And we're going to see no different here. Verse 4 says that the ram no one could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. Verses 6, 7, and 8 talk about the goat and his powerful wrath and how there was no one who could rescue from his power and how he became exceedingly great, right? So we're going to see these words come back up over and over. So just keep your ears open so when you hear that, we can start to get a picture of what greatness means in this passage. I'm going to keep reading some of the vision. I'm going to go to verses 9 to 12. It says, Out of one of them, the four horns that sprang up on the goat, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts of the, some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. So we're going to talk a little bit about the players that are in this so far. We've been given a whole bunch of characters and a whole bunch of ideas. 
So we're going to talk through those a little bit. One of the things that underlies this is a change of language. Now, we don't see this as much in our English Bible, but chapters 2 through the beginning of chapter 8 are in Aramaic, a more common worldwide language at the time when this would have been written. In chapter 8, we make a switch back to Hebrew. We make a switch back to the language of the nation of Judah. So we have a, a shift here, I think, in attention to the nation of Judah. And language is, is interesting and significant throughout the Bible. Similarly, the use of Daniel's name versus Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name. You see as you read Daniel that there's a shift back and forth between that. Not all of them are necessarily grandly significant, but it's just little things like that for us to pay attention to. Um, so some of the scope we understand is going to start to focus on the nation of Israel. So rather than trying to figure out what all of this means right off the bat, I'm going to go through and let's talk about each of those players, each of those pieces, and what Daniel would have understood them, because he's going to have things that would have made sense to him instantly that don't make sense to us. And there are things that make sense to us now that probably wouldn't have made sense to him. So we're going to try and distinguish between those a little bit. The first is the little horn in verse 9. This is apparently somewhat significant because we're talking about him. We understand him probably to be a king just because of the imagery of the horn and the king and the kingdoms. We're going to hear that more clarified in a moment. We don't think he's probably the same as the horn on the fourth beast, the little horn on the fourth beast in chapter 7. So we read in chapter 7 about the Antichrist coming to power after the ten horns, right? After the ten kings. But we don't think this is necessarily the same one. It's coming from an earlier beast and it's not coming from the same sort of grounding. So this is probably not the same person as we recognize the Antichrist, but we don't really know who this is so far, and Daniel certainly wouldn't have. We see him referring to the glorious land in verse 9. This is something I think Daniel would have understood very clearly, right? The glorious land is, is Israel, it's Canaan, it's the promised land. This is the, the land of hope and covenant for all of the Israelite people. We see the host of heaven in verse 10. Host is a word that is synonymous with, with army or with company, the people of heaven, the people, God's people. So this would have referred to the people of Israel. This is something that I think Daniel would have understood. In that verse, it also says, and some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled them. This is the first place where I stopped in this passage and I went, stars. What, what does it mean that he threw down stars and trampled them? It's an image, it's a vision. So it doesn't have to be literal, obviously. But what does it mean? And there are a variety of theories, but I think ultimately it's not as complicated as I wanted to make it. The, the host and the stars seem to be parallel in this passage. And if we go back in our Old Testament just a moment to Genesis 15.5, to the, the covenant with Abraham, God sends him outside and he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Similarly, in addressing Deuteronomy 1 verse 10, it says, the Lord God has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. It seems that the stars of heaven was another way of referring to the people of Israel. It doesn't need to have grander, broader meaning than that. This was a vision, so visual language is great, and I believe that's who he was referring to, and I think Daniel would have been able to identify that. Similarly, in verse 11, it says that he became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. Okay, who's the prince of the host? Daniel, I think, again, would have understood this to be the leader of the host, and there was only one ruler, one king, who was truly the prince of the host. And that would have been God himself. There are other theories, but I think that is the simplest and most straightforward and makes the most sense, except that it does beg one sort of problematic question. What does the passage mean when it says that the little horn became great, even as great as the prince of hosts? Furthermore, what would this have looked like in his vision? 
How would this have been represented? We're not, we're not painted a picture. I wish the Bible were, were a picture book more often, and this is about as close as we get in this chapter, but I don't know what that would have even looked like for Daniel. So I don't think we need to understand what that means quite yet. I don't think Daniel would have understood what that meant quite yet. But we can continue to read and sort of sock that question away and say, let's come back to that and see if we can understand that later. Let me read on in verses 13 and 14. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. It seems that even the angels who were witness to this vision were saddened by it and echoed a refrain that we hear from the people of Israel. In Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2, it says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In Psalm 94, a psalm very likely written during the exile, verses 3 and 4 say, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. This is a common refrain that we see in the Old Testament. Lord, how long will this endure? It's interesting to me because this is not the first question that I would ask in suffering. Very often, my first question is going to be, why? Why do I have to go through this? Why do do my friends have to go through this? Why does our church have to go through this? Why does our country, why does our world fill in the blank? Why, oh God, why? But the angel didn't need to ask that question. And Daniel didn't need to ask that question. Daniel was in an exile that was brought about by God as, as a term of punishment, as a term of of correction, of loving discipline to the people of Israel. So the question of how long is a better question probably. And if he wasn't, if we weren't confident in that, verse 12 says it's because of transgression that the action takes place. There's some debate about whose transgression or what transgression, but, but really if the people of God are the ones being trampled underfoot and killed, and it's their sacrifices that are being taken from the temple, they are the ones being punished. Those sacrifices were never for God. The blood of bulls and goats does not reconcile us to God. They were for us as a reminder. So if they're being taken away from the people of Israel, it's their punishment. It's their transgression. And if there's any doubt about that, come back in two weeks to hear Chuck take on chapter 9, and you will hear Daniel respond to this vision with lament and with sorrow over the sins of Israel and the punishment that comes along. Really, the the peak of this vision is in verse 14, and he says to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. This is a much more specific date than we're used to, right? As we read through Daniel, and if you've been paying attention, we've been hearing numbers like a time and times and half a time, which make every bit as much sense to me as they do to you, so don't be ashamed that those are strange numbers. We see these sort of visionary numbers, these representative numbers, these symbolic numbers. And we're used to seeing numbers like 4 and 7 and 10 and 21. And yet we get this sort of weird number that's 2,300. How do we understand that number? How would Daniel have understood that number so that we know what God was communicating to him and the people of Israel? 
The beginning of verse 15 gives us a hint about how Daniel understood that number. It says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Daniel didn't understand it yet. And I think it's okay if we don't. So we're going to, again, hand that question on a shelf for a moment and keep going in the passage. Verses 15 to 19 continue on. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, the vision, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. The voice of the man that we hear from between the banks of the canal commands Gabriel the archangel. Really only one person who gets that pleasure. So we can be confident that the voice coming from between the banks of the canal was God himself. And he commands Gabriel, make this man understand how blessed we are that we have a God who continues to communicate with us in words that we can hear and understand, that we can read and understand, that we can share in discussion between one another, that we're not left to guess. The angel says that this is the time of the end or the latter end of the indignation Again, unlike chapter 7, I don't think we're talking about the end of all time. We're not talking about Christ's return here. We're talking about an end, not the end. This vision doesn't seem to have either the Antichrist or the return of Christ in view. Again, this is a, a shorter view of history. This is zoomed in a little bit to tell us something specific about the end of the indignation brought about by the little horn, the end of the, the transgression that makes desolate. And this is still something that Daniel might not have understood fully. He might have seen a nuanced difference, but he might not have understood that fully. So it's okay if you don't on first reading of this as well. Let me continue on with the explanation that the angel gives in verses 20 through 25. He says, As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by not human hands, but by no human hands. So this, this explanation that the angel gives tells us who the ram is, right? The ram is the kingdoms of Media and Persia. It tells us who the goat is, the goat as the kingdom of Greece. And the kings of each of those nations are distinguished greater and lesser by the horns on those animals. And those horns are broken, representing the rise and fall of those kings. Even the division of Greece is foretold in this passage. Not that that would have meant anything to Daniel yet. And then the little horn emerges, a, a, apparently a future king of Greece. 
more evidence that this is not the Antichrist, but one more king in a line of succession. And though he might not be the Antichrist, we talk oftentimes from the pulpit and in our classes about a type of Christ. What does it mean something is a type of Christ? Well, it's a representation of Christ. It's, it's a way to describe Christ in narrative and, and descriptive language without actually talking about Christ. It gives us a glimpse of who he is and how he operates and what he's about. In the same way, the little horn here represents a type of the Antichrist. It shows us a glimpse of who he is and how he operates and what he does. He's arrogant and bold of face. He's cunning as the one who understands riddles. He has the ability to manipulate words. See Genesis 3 and the serpent in the garden asking pointed questions. And then temptation of Christ in the desert asking manipulative questions, cunning questions. He's a destroyer and a desecrator. Verse 24 says that he destroys mighty men and the people who are the saints. Again, referring back to the host of heaven and the stars. Verse 25, he shall destroy many and he shall rise up even against the prince of princes. If we go back to the original vision, verse 13 says he commits the transgression that makes desolate. Verses 10 through 12 read, it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the Prince of Hosts, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So this leads us back to a question we shelved a little while ago of, of what does it mean for him to become as great as the Prince of Hosts? What does it mean in the interpretation that he will rise up against the prince of princes. How do we understand these passages? How do we understand greatness in general? As I, as I read this passage and the word great and greatest came back up in my mind, I heard a soundbite that kept clicking over in my head from a 1964 television interview of a man named Cassius Clay, better known to some of you as Muhammad Ali. Before his, his championship fight with Sonny Liston, he said to the cameras, I am the greatest. I am the greatest. And eight rounds later, he proved it. When I looked up greatest men on the internet, what is the world, how does the world define what is great? I found a list, a top 10, that comes from a book of, I think, the top 100 greatest, most influential men in history. It was written in the 70s and revised in the 90s, and it's every bit as good as you think it is. Don't worry. But it had a top 10. So the top 10 greatest men in history, number one, the prophet Muhammad, number two, Isaac Newton, sliding in just behind the father of physics is Jesus Christ, Buddha, Confucius, Paul of Tarsus makes the top 10, Saul Paul as my children call him, Kai Loon, Johannes Gutenberg, Christopher Columbus, who I thought we decided didn't actually do anything, and Albert Einstein. These are your top 10 greatest men of history. This is, this is how the world views greatness. And how does this passage describe the quote-unquote greatness of the ram and the goat? I think professional boxing is a wonderful analogy for this, right? They were the greatest. They were unstoppable. Until one day they weren't. And then the next guy, he was the greatest. He was unstoppable. 
the new champ, put the belt on him, and then he lost and he wasn't the greatest anymore either. What does how they're portrayed in this passage tell us about greatness? Well, in chapter 2 in the vision, we have a statue, right? We have a, an image of man, not, not real, but an image of man theoretically created by man that, that glorifies man, right? In chapter 7, we have beasts, the way God would have seen them, grotesque and unclean, and terrifying the way we would have seen them. And now in chapter 8, when the, the, the theme becomes greatness... How are they described? They're little more than livestock. They're, they're domesticated animals we might have eaten for dinner. This seems inconsistent with this idea that they're the greatest and they're the power and authority. Then we're introduced to this little horn, described first as little, which is fun. How does he represent the same warped view of greatness? Verse 25 says, and in his own mind, he shall become great. This seems to be the key to unlocking that passage, right? In his mind, he is the greatest. His greatness is in his imagination, and what little authority he has is temporal at best. Like all of the horns before him, and Muhammad Ali, and the prophet Muhammad, and Isaac Newton, their greatness came to an end. Most certainly when they died and stood before a holy God in judgment. What about Daniel? What does his experience tell us about greatness? He was, he was someone who, as a boy, not much older than my son, was taken from his home and dropped into the palace of one of the most powerful despotic kings in all of history. And he was able to stand and tell truth, and challenge where necessary, and risk his life for what he believed, never bowing a knee to the religion or the leaders, but serving faithfully and being obedient to his God. And he continues to stand in those kind of palaces with the ram and the goat and those who are the greatest. Maybe not the goat, he doesn't live that long. What about verses 17 and 18? And in this vision, he's having a vision, right? This isn't a real event that occurred. This is a vision that was delivered to him, a waking vision. And if you read back through this chapter, you're going to realize that Daniel never speaks, not once, in this passage. In the vision of the greatness of God, he can't even muster words. And ultimately, an angel has to ask the question for him, how long, O Lord? And God has to request the explanation be given to him because he can't ask what? And when Gabriel does come to describe to him what happens to poor Daniel, Gabriel approaches and Daniel immediately hides himself in fear from a visionary presence of an angel of God, not even God himself. And if that wasn't enough, the angel speaks to him, hits the floor passed out unconscious. And the angel has to restore him and bring him back up. What would Daniel have understood about greatness? Furthermore, this passage tells us about where the little horn gets his greatness and power from. First, he gets it from his deceit and from his imagination. 
He decides he's great. And he goes about getting it by whatever means necessary. And he creates an image of himself in his head that he lives out. Verse 24 tells us more specifically, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. When we see things happening in the Bible that don't seem to have an agent, when we're told this happened, but, but not by this means, or, or this happened to this person, when we get a passive verb or a passive thing happening, we encounter what we call the divine passive. When there's no other agent responsible for something, most of the time in Scripture, it's because God himself was the actor. God himself made it happen. So when we see it say that he was, his power shall be great, but not by his own power, since we're not given another explanation, the assumption here is that God delivers his power to him. And if we're not clear about that, we go to verse 25 when it says that his, he shall be broken, but by no human hands. Here, it's not just a passive. We're not just, told, we're not, just not told who the actor is, but we're actually told no, no human hand is going to be responsible for this. Well, if no human hand is responsible for it, then there's only one other person who could have done it. So in the same way that his power comes from outside of himself, his power is taken from outside of himself. God makes a visible illustration for Daniel of this little horn, and really to the nation of Israel and ultimately to us, that human power and authority are borrowed power and authority at best. The last two verses in Daniel 8, verses 26 and 27, the angel continues, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days, then I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. What is Daniel's reaction to this vision? He lays sick in bed for days. He's so overcome by the vision and the presence of God and all of the information that he, he simply lays sick in bed. I've never experienced something where somebody delivered information to me that disabled me for days. Some of you may have. I'm thankful that God has spared me of that. But this idea that his initial reaction was to lay sick. And what did Daniel really have? He had a vision from a destroyed citadel about a future king that he had no other information about who would deprive the nation of Israel of their right to sacrifice and worship in the temple. But after all, the temple was destroyed at this time. Babylon had destroyed the temple when it went through Israel. So what was he left to believe? That the temple would be rebuilt and regained and then lost again? This would have been heartbreaking for somebody like Daniel who's, who was awaiting the return from exile for all of his people. And what on earth was he supposed to do with this information? This is not news that you call your friends and say, hey, guess what I just found out? He didn't win the lottery. Something tragic was going to happen. And even though it tells us that it would be restored in the end. The time period before that was going to be painful. And he was told to seal it up. What, what, so this is just for me? So I just get to sit on this and enjoy this by myself? What it ultimately says is that he didn't understand. Chuck said this last week, and I'll repeat it again. The fact that we read something like this and it says Daniel didn't understand should bring us hope. Because then what I don't understand Hopefully, I don't feel quite as foolish for not understanding myself. Understanding is often a very hard-fought battle, and it's rarely won in a single fight. But even though he didn't understand, when he recovered, what does it say that he did? 
says that he got back up and went about the king's business. Even though he was frustrated and didn't understand what was going on around him, he got back up and he went back to the life to which God had called him. And he did so with, with gusto, right? This was not a guy who halfway did things. That's just not the impression we ever get of Daniel. He got back up and went about the king's business, serving where God had placed him in the role that he had been put in. I wonder what he might have understood later. Having been given some time to consider this, having given some time to think about the vision, talk to trusted friends about the vision and to study it together, what he might have understood. It brings me back to the 2300 evenings and mornings. Evenings and mornings is just a Jewish way of saying a day, right? If we go back to the creation account, we see there was evening, there was morning on the first day. So 2300 evenings and mornings. The, The time frame is different than what we're used to. And many attempts since then have been attempted to to really Cinderella shoe this thing onto events that took place in history. And frankly, none of them are spectacular. Some of them are pretty interesting, but none of them are spectacular. And Daniel wouldn't have had any of that information. So the message that he was meant to understand must have been different than that anyway. If Daniel had to give some sort of understanding to this, I think he might have done it in a couple ways. One way is the number 2,300 certainly gives weight. If you tell me something's going to happen to me for 2,300 days, I'm going to have to get out a calculator to figure out how long that is. And it doesn't sound like a short time that I'm excited about, right? Secondarily, when you do the math, you find out that it's less than seven years. It's about six months and six years and four months. What Daniel might have understood is that a, a period of divine judgment in the Bible is typically about seven years. We see that in the famines at the time of Elijah and 2 Kings, and we see that in the Midianite oppression in Judges 6, where God punishes his people and divine judgment comes about in periods of seven years. So there might have been some hope there that this was less than a full period of divine judgment. But even that, I think, is probably stretching. Ultimately, what I think is most significant in this number, and what I think Daniel would have come to realize, is that this is a number. Is that Daniel was told, this evil king is going to rise to power at some point in the distant future. But I already have his days counted. And at the time that I have appointed, it will come to an end. That there is no greatness other than my greatness. And all power and authority is borrowed. What I think you might have come to understand is this statement, and this is what I want you to remember, is though evil may prevail for a time, All authority is granted by God, and he already knows the day, the hour, and the means by which he will take it back. And I think he demonstrates this in Belshazzar's final hours, as we learned a few weeks ago back in Daniel 5. Daniel 5, verses 26 to 28 reads, This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. I believe it was God's providence that placed this vision during the reign of Belshazzar so that this moment could happen some five or six or seven years later to make clear to Daniel and to the Israelite people and to the watching world that your number, your days are numbered. So what can we gain? If we zoom out for a moment, we assume that that was the message that Daniel was intended to 
to hear and portray, if we zoom out now and get the benefit of our hindsight of history, what can we gain from it? I know there are history buffs out there and Bible nerds out there who are dying because half of the fun of this passage is how it overlays with real history. So I promise, we're getting there, I promise. So much of this vision is accurate that many scholars refuse to believe that it was written in the 6th century B.C. Because it talks about events that take place in the 4th and 2nd centuries, hundreds of years later, with disturbing accuracy. But we understand that we have a God who lives outside of time and who can see these events and certainly tell them as they were. So what do we know? We know that, in fact, Media and Persia do take over the Babylonian Empire. We actually see that in Daniel. That happens in chapter 5. We see that that step takes place. The ram takes possession of the empire. They're a world power who possesses much of the known world at that time. And the Persian Empire, like all champions, is dethroned by the Grecian Empire. The goat, led by its conspicuous horn, the first king who we would come to know in history as Alexander the Great, moves across the empire with troubling speed. In a matter of three years, most of the empire is taken by Greece. Skirmishes would go on for years, but in three years, they take most of the largest empire known to man. Yet just as it reaches the pinnacle of its power, Greece is badly wounded by the death of Alexander the Great. Having never lost a military battle, his life is cut short. Theories abound, but his life ends. His kingdom falls into turmoil. Civil war, infighting, it's divided amongst his four generals, and four nations arise from the Grecian Empire. From one of those empires, the Seleucid Empire, coincidentally where the Susa of Citadel and its vision would have taken place, a man rises to power. And I say rises because he was not in line for the throne. He was a, a, a younger brother of sort of a, a secondary family. And he rises to power through a variety of intrigues which most likely involved the assassination of his brother and his infant nephew who would have taken the throne. Coins stamped in his name read, King Antiochus, God manifest, bearer of victory. He would become known to history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Though the Greeks generally respected the Jewish temple and their right to practice their religion because it kept the peace, Antiochus was far less than tolerant and far less tolerant than the previous kings. The books of 1 and 2 Maccabees from the period between the Old Testament and New Testament are essentially all about this time in history and the battle that ensues between Antiochus and the Jewish leaders. As the conflict grew, a group of conservative Jews led a revolt while Antiochus was in Egypt and thought to be dead. They attempt to retake the temple, and they're wrong. Antiochus is not dead. And they fail to retake the temple in that attempt. The book of 2 Maccabees records for us historically the events that transpired afterward. When the news of what had happened in Jerusalem reached Antiochus, he thought the whole of the country of Judea was in revolt, and he became as furious as a wild animal. So he left Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm, giving his men orders to cut down without mercy everyone who they met and to slaughter anyone they found hiding in houses. They murdered everyone, men, women, boys, girls, and even babies. Three days later, Jerusalem had lost 80,000 people. 
40,000 killed in the attack, and at least as many were taken away to be sold as slaves. But Antiochus was still not satisfied. He dared to enter the holiest temple in all the world. With his filthy and unholy hands, Antiochus swept away the sacred objects of worship. In the second book, in chapter 6, it continues, Not long after that, the king sent an elderly Athenian to force the Jews to abandon their religion and and the customs of their ancestors. He was also to defile their temple by dedicating it to the Olympian god Zeus. Gentiles filled the temple with drinking parties and all sorts of immorality. They even had intercourse with prostitutes there. Forbidden objects were brought into the temple, and the altar was covered with detestable sacrifices prohibited by our law. It was impossible to observe the Sabbath, to celebrate any of the traditional festivals, or even so much as to admit to being a Jew. Now why do I tell you this story of Antiochus? As I'm sure you've connected, Antiochus is what history has come to know to be the little horn. The prophecies predate him by more than four centuries. His rise to power, his desecration of the temple, and ultimately his death are foretold and come to pass. God uses kings and kingdoms over 500 years to reveal to Daniel and the nation of Israel and us his sovereignty over kings and kingdoms. He turns great kings like Alexander into footnotes, and turns irrelevant nobodies into major characters. God shows us through Daniel's vision of Antiochus again that evil may prevail for a time, but all authority is given by God. and He already knows the power of the time that he will take it back. But not just through Antiochus, right? Antiochus is still just a type, and we have seen Antiochus rise again and again. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Fill in the blank with your favorite despot. So what do we do with this? This this vision obviously didn't bring Daniel a whole lot of hope. He didn't spring out of bed to go tell everybody about it. It was hard for him to hear, and it's hard for us to hear. If you tell me that my church or my child or my wife is going to suffer for seven years, I would be heartbroken. If you tell me that it's purposeful and that it's going to come to an end and God will use it for glory, that doesn't stop me from mourning the loss of that time and that health and that happiness. But the truth about Daniel should bring us great confidence, if not immediate comfort. I don't need to despair when my candidate for school board, Congress, or even my president don't get elected. I don't need to despair when laws that I disagree with seem to be traveling through my government. I don't need to despair when evil, power-hungry leaders oppress my attempt to practice my religion and suppress what I believe because I know that God has already numbered their days and that their power, like all others, will come to an end. God does not promise me comfort or ease, nor does he promise me that he won't challenge me with anything I can't handle. It's just the opposite. Please don't repeat that refrain to people. What he tells us is that he will fulfill his purposes in his timing. Not in my timing. Maybe not even in my lifetime. But if he is what is ultimately best for me, and he has and gives good things to his children, then I don't need to despair regardless of the circumstances. As one author put it, the final word is not had by the ram or the goat or the little horn, but by the lamb So we worship Jesus the Lamb, the one through whom God's kingdom comes for all of eternity. He is the one who finally triumphs, 
who has secured our future and who has and will sustain his people in this prolonged season of exile and suffering. As we look at greatness, Christ is the only true greatness. And his kingdom is not numbered. His days are not numbered. It does not end. If that's not practical enough for you, let me take two minutes to give you three practical things we can understand from this. The truth of Daniel 8 should prepare us for exile, suffering, and oppression. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Similarly, the Mark 13, 22 and 23 says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. Just as Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist to tell us something about who he was in his personality, he foreshadows the methods of the Antichrists who would follow and ultimately of the great Antichrist. So we can take clues from how he operates and thinks to prepare us to deal with those things. The first thing we must do is be devoted to the word of God and commit his truths to our hearts and memories so that we will not be deceived. Just as we saw Antiochus throw truth to the ground, other Antichrists have and will come and that's where they will start. And they must pry it from our white knuckles and our hearts rather than from our lazy fingers and our distracted eyes. Second, we must preach the gospel to our own hearts and those around us with urgency and diligence. We're promised that they will come and take many. And many will be lost, both to physical death and to apostasy, to to abandoning the faith because of a lack of true faith. When challenged, they're blown into places where they cannot grow. If we want to save ourselves from that fate and others, we must constantly be preaching the gospel to our own hearts and others so that we can be confident in the gospel truth. Finally, we must treasure and preserve the public means of grace that God has ordained, meeting together for worship, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the word and public prayer, etc. We should expect to see our rituals and our traditions, and the things that bring us together taken apart from us. That's, that's how you disassemble the people. That was the very playbook of the Babylonian Empire, was to disassemble the people and to integrate them into a culture. We should expect to find those things challenged. And though we live in a country that's blessed to be founded on freedom of expression and religion, those freedoms are fragile, and not everybody celebrates the same freedoms. And the last 12 months, if they haven't taught us anything else, should teach us how easily those things can be taken from us if we don't protect them. Not by despots and evil leaders that we can see, but by circumstances in life. And if we don't fight for those things and protect those things, they will go away. Knowing that the punishment of Israel would endure far beyond his years and that he would live out his days serving evil kings in a foreign land Daniel was not lazy in his faith or his practices. He prayed and worshipped all the more diligently. Likewise, knowing that God gives authority to people we don't like should not bring us despair. And knowing that he will reclaim that authority should not bring us apathy. Rather, it should cause us to confidently live out the lives of faith to which God has called us 
in our place, in our time in history, with the same diligence and energy that he deserves and that Daniel modeled for us. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are truly great. You are a God who knows the beginning from the end, Lord, and has numbered our days and the days of those who we love and cherish, Lord, and those who we despise. Father, I pray as we go away from this message today, Lord, that we would have confidence that you are in charge and that we can go about living our lives, Lord, what might seem like ordinary lives, that we can live them in boldness and in power and in truth for you. We thank you for your word and for the gathering of your saints. We bring all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen.